Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Nomads Past and Present, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Dr. Charlotte Marquina. Charlotte is a social anthropologist and associate professor in Mongolian language and culture at the National Institute for Oriental Languages and Civilizations in Paris. Her research focuses on human-animal coexistence, communication, and collaborations in nomadic pastoralist communities in Mongolia and southern Siberia. Her book, which is titled Nomadic Pastoralism Among the Mongol Herders, Multispecies and Spatial Ethnography in Mongolia and Transbaikalia, was published in 2021 by Amsterdam University Press, and that's what we'll be talking about today. So thank you so much, Charlotte, for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me today. So to get started, um, so your research or the research that's presented in your book focuses on nomadic pastoralist communities in what are today two different countries. Uh, so you're working on um, pastoralists in Mongolia and also in Buryatia, um, which is a Russian province that borders northern Mongolia. So can you talk a little bit about sort of those two communities? What are the sort of differences or similarities between them? And why did you decide to conduct this kind of multi-country research as opposed to just focusing on one national context or the other? So maybe um, the easiest is, is to explain how I came to work um, on Siberia because I started actually to work on Mongolia while I was a, a master's student. Um, I studied the uh, human-horse relationship among the um, herders of Mongolia, and um, I so I started to learn. I started, I started with studies in anthropology and studies in Mongolian language and culture, and. Um, I actually studied before um, Russian language um, uh, already in high school, and a very few, very few Mongolists um, in Europe um, uh, speak both Mongolian and Russian. And so I was wisely advised to um, uh, compare the situation between um, two Mongolic uh, groups, ethnic groups, um, on both sides of the Mongolia-Russia border. Um, as I was already a, a Russian speaker. So uh, the second year of my master's program, I extended my research uh, also to uh, the Buryats. So um, the Buryats, they are um, a Mongol, a Mongol ethnic group. Um, they live mostly in Russia. They are the, northerns, the northernmost uh, uh, Mongol ethnic group, um, but there are also Buryats in Mongolia and in Inner Mongolia um, in China, which makes the situation quite complicated, but they li- mostly live in Russia and, uh, uh, and in Mongolia there are also uh, several ethnic groups, but I focused uh, uh, my research on the uh, uh, half Mongolians, which are the, um, uh, the majority ethnic group in, in Mongolia. And so I was very interested in um, comparing uh, the situation as um, uh, the Mongols and, and, and the Buryats, they are both uh, um, um, Mongol-speaking groups. Um, they both practice um, nomadic, uh, extensive pastoralism, but they live in very different um, um, economical, political, 
contexts, and um, the uh, I was very interested in the influence of Russian uh, culture uh, and Russian uh, context on the um, on the Buryat culture and their relation uh, their relations to uh, animals and husbandry relations to the the environment. And I decided also to focus on the um, most eastern Buryats of Russia because traditionally we uh, can distinguish between the western Buryats located west of the Lake Baikal um, who traditionally live in a forest environment and traditionally live more from hunting practices than husbandry. And while the the eastern Buryats, um, that is in in Transbarcalia, um, they uh, uh, practice a very um, ex- ex- uh, extensive husbandry, uh, nomadic husbandry, which is uh, closer to the uh, Mongolian way of uh, um, of living. And so, actually, I conducted fieldwork outside of the Republic of Buryatia, because uh, in Russia, the Buryats they live mainly in the Republic of Buryatia, but also in two um, distinct uh, Buryats districts. Um, in uh, east and west of, of uh, the Republic of Riyadh, and so I conducted fieldwork in the most eastern district, which is the Aga district, and which is today located in the um, Transbarcalia region. And so, throughout your book, you use the terms nomadizing and nomadization. Can you explain those a little bit? You know, how are how are you understanding those terms and why do you use those terms quite explicitly? You know, I think you use them quite intentionally um, as opposed to terms we're maybe more familiar with or maybe more customary, like nomad, nomadic, nomadism. How are you kind of splitting the hairs there? Actually, that's that's a question, I think, of translation. Um, um, in French, as this book was translated from French, uh, I, I originally wrote this book um, um, in French and it was published, published in, in 2019. Um, and in French, we make this distinction between um, um, migrating and nomadizing, as migrating is seen as a um, uh, as a, a, a permanent uh, movement with, with a permanent uh, change. A definite change of location, whereas um, uh, nomadizing is, um, which is actually also translated in English as uh, migrating, uh, but it, it implies um, that the um, uh, movements are uh, uh, cyclical, and you come each year to the same places um, again. So maybe, yeah. With uh, now, I now that I uh, have also some feedback on on, on the book, uh, maybe I would now actually um, uh, translate it in, in, into English as like migrating uh, instead of nomadizing. And so, yeah, a, a, a no, what, what I call in the book nomadization is is to be understood as a migration, uh, like like a nomadic migration. Mm-hmm. And how did the communities that you worked among, how did they define themselves and their lifestyles? Would they have defined it in kind of similar terms? Or what are, you know, I understand that obviously they would use terms from other languages, but how would you translate how they defined their lifestyles and their kind of nomadic, nomadizing practices? 
Um, so in, in Mongolia, um, so just also to give some um, elements of, of context for people who don't know uh, don't know anything about Mongolian culture and know, uh, Mongolian husbandry. Um, uh, Mongolian uh, pastoralists they move several times a year. Uh, depends on the region. Depends on um, the, um, the size of their herds. Um, depends on their also on their personal history. But um, they move between. Well, they say traditionally four times a year each season, but some move only twice a year, um, and some also will move up to 15, 20 times uh, uh, in a year, depending on, on their environment and other um, factors. Um, in uh, what what they don't define themselves as actually as nomads because they de- they define themselves just as um, uh, herders um, because. Uh, traditionally in Mongolia, uh, all herders are uh, nomads. So there is no need to specify that they are uh, nomads. But they, they have this verb, nuh, which means uh, uh, like to migrate, to move places. Um, in um, When I started to do uh, research uh, about the, the Buryats of Russia, there was very few literature available um, about the Aga Buryats, the Buryats where I, um, with whom I conducted field work, and um, and there were only mainly uh, work about their traditional way of life at the early twentieth uh, uh, century, and they it was they um, those uh, works mostly described their way of life, um, which seemed very very close to. Um, the way of life of the uh, uh, Mongols of Mongolia, and so when I arrived for the first time um, in that region, uh, I was expecting yurts. I was expecting so because the uh, the Mongols they live uh, in yurts, uh, um, like uh, it's like cir- circular circular a tent made of felt and wood, and uh, but everybody was very surprised that I was looking for nomads uh, living in yurts. So. Um, I um, I uh, I met herders living in wooden houses, and uh, they were very surprised uh, that I could um, compare their situation to that of the uh, uh, Mongol herders uh, of Mongolia. And so, but when I asked them uh, if uh, if they were still uh, if they weren't nomads, said no, we're not nomads. You know, nomads you have in northern Siberia with reindeer. We don't. We were not nomads. Uh, and then, maybe a few hours later, some uh, herder mentioned that they were about to migrate to or to nomadize to to the next uh, uh, for for the next season. And so I asked them, "But w- won't you be uh, migrating or nomadizing? Uh, you just told me you're 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 a nomad." And said, "Yeah, yeah of course we, <laughs> of course we nomadize or, or migrate." So they used, uh, but it, uh, they used uh, the term in Buryat, which is very close to uh, the Mongolian one, but also in uh, in Russian, the, the term that is used to say to uh, to be nomads. And uh, uh, so they also didn't define themselves as nomads, but they were moving seasonally uh, for their uh, for their herds. Uh, but yeah, but one one of the main differences is that um, uh, they live now in in wooden houses uh, and not in in yurts anymore, um, and which uh, uh, makes flexibility 
quite uh, quite difficult in com- comparison with the, the Mongolian uh, situation in case of climatic disaster, uh, drought, or um, uh, uh, or a harsh winter. Uh, they don't have the uh, uh, the possibility of of uh, changing their uh, routes or in itinerary, um, which is uh, uh, yeah, which is quite different from Mongolia. Hmm. And so, what factors um, led to the use of wooden houses in Buryatia? Then, um, if it's you know, if it generates conditions of less flexibility, what led to that shift? Um, of course, the influence of Russian culture is um, is important in, in that region. Um, the Buryats uh, uh, started to be in, in very close contact with Russian culture from the 17th, 18th century. And so it first uh, had an impact on the practices of husbandry, of agriculture. Um, they started to um, uh, grow vegetables, also to uh, grow uh, more and more crop. And also to live in in wooden houses, uh, which were uh, deemed more uh, comfortable than um, than uh, than yurts. Um, they um, also uh, uh, they like to have um, say a wooden. Um, a wood, they they have like a very um, a more Russianized way of life with small wooden uh, houses that are used um, to bath. Uh, like it's it's a bit like it's a banya in Russian, it's like a, a little sauna, um, and uh, they they have also so their uh, vegetable vegetable plot now. Uh, even if uh, if they're uh, herders, pastoralists, um, they now have access to electricity, and also they 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 state themselves that um, um, they don't like to go to their summer station because the Buryats now nowadays have two. Um, to say like farms or stations and the summer station is um, located usually um, on the hills and are um, are uh, further away from the village uh, they don't have um, access to um, electricity uh, at the difference of the, the the main or the main station which is used uh, from uh, from um, autumn to uh, to spring and what are the land policies in these respective regions? You know, how are um, how is herders' access to land governed? By what institutions? Is it collectively owned? Is it managed through herding associations? Is it owned by the government? Is it leased? What does that look like in the two different countries? Because I imagine there are quite different kind of structural forces at play. Yes, the situation is is, is quite different. Um, in Mongolia, um, land uh, um, at at the countryside, it's very different uh, situation um, in the cities. But um, um, in the countryside, land is either publicly owned or um, uh, 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 or owned by um, uh, say associations of of herders, and they then have contracts. Uh, in which they explain um, um, how and when uh, uh, herders use uh, the land. But there is no, what is important is that there is no individual private property on the land. 
um, among the herders, um, which is very important to maintain a level of flexibility in case of, um, of climatic irregularity. So this does not mean that there, uh, there are not um, uh, um, uses of land uh, that define who who use who uses uh, um, uh, which places which which land. So the, the herders have a kind of fixed winter uh, and or spring encampment, um, and uh, so we know they know they know and the, and the state knows exactly where the herders live when where where they spend the, the winter when they uh, spend a spring. Um, and that is their official uh, place of uh, uh, where the place where they live. Um, but there is some flexibility with the summer encampments, which can change uh, from year to year if there are uh, uh, if there is any difficulty or, or, or climate change, for example. Um, in Russia, the situation is quite different because after the fall of the uh, 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 of the uh, Soviet system, um, um, land was well. The the, the government um, encouraged land privatization. Uh, what happened is that so the um, the animals were privatized, which was also the case, by the way, um, in Mongolia after the fall of the socialist um, socialist uh, regime. Um, but in in Russia, so. Uh, uh, um, documents were distributed to encourage um, land privatization and in particular in this uh, in the Buryat regions in uh, 1995 but they um, the herders actually saw no interest in uh, privatizing um, the land because the usage uh, the, the use of land just stayed the same so they would just continue to use land as they did before and they, uh, what they saw in this privatization was only additional costs, uh, maybe taxes, and also the loss of uh, of flexibility and and maybe uh, even more common use because herders they share um, they share pastures, um, for example, cows can uh, can graze um, of different herders can graze together on the same on the same land. Um, so they didn't do anything with those um, with those uh, documents, uh, and but then in uh, in uh, uh, 2011 and 12, the Russian government um, stated that if they didn't do anything um, with those rights, um, land could actually um, go back um, to the state, and then um, uh, if it wasn't privatized, uh, herders. Uh, they were actually afraid that they could be kicked out uh, of their uh, of their land. So they had they they were kind of forced into land land privatization. Uh, um, so herders became uh, slowly officially um, owners of their lands, but in 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 the, the, during the first year, it it actually didn't change that much as they continued to uh, use the land as they did uh, as they did before. Some herders. Um, use this opportunity to start uh, growing more crop and and also to fence the land. So this might um, I'm I hope to go back to the field in the coming years. I don't know when because of course it's very complicated now, and to see how the situation is going to evolve because we know that this fencing of the land also um, 
happened in Inner Mongolia and China, and that this led to um, ecological disaster uh, because of this lack of flexibility and common use of, of pastures. Mm-hmm. And so since you brought up livestock, uh, we should probably talk about animals since your research is on human-animal relations and collaboration. Um, so just sort of the basics for somebody who is not familiar with this context, what is the livestock that's owned and herded by Mongolians and Buryats? You know, you've already mentioned cows, I think, but there are certainly other animals um, that are herded. Um, so what are those? So traditionally, um, the uh, Mongol peoples, they raise what they call the five muzzles. And the five muzzles are horses, camels, um, cattle. So um, cattle includes um, uh, cows, but also yaks and hybrids of those. Um, sheep and goats. Um, so nowadays, in, in among the Buryats, the camels are almost... Um, gone. Um, they were their um, their number declined during the um, the twentieth century during the Soviet um, um, period as um, they were mainly used uh, in the uh, Mongolian way of life for uh, transport and for to migrate and as as a labor force. And slowly, um, as uh, husbandry was mechanized. There were there, there there wasn't much need anymore, and so they they are nowadays there may be like uh, twenty camels in, in the in the Buryat region, which are kept for symbolic reasons, uh, because the Buryats they raise traditionally raise the five muzzles, so it's it's good to keep them for symbolic reasons. But they don't do anything with them. They don't eat the meat. They don't milk them. Uh, they don't use their wool. Um, so they actually only now mainly raise uh, horses, um, cows, um, sheep and goats, and also pigs, which is also in, which were introduced in in the twentieth century and under Russian influence. In Mongolia, um, they um, so they raise the five muzzles. Not all, not all the five in all regions. Also, depending on climatic and uh, environmental conditions, but they. Um, so they eat the meat of all those animals. They milk them all. They use the wool, uh, the wool or, or or the hair of all those animals. They use horses and camels as uh, as mounts. They uh, use camels as pack animals. They use camels and yaks as uh, draft animals. Um, and something I found fascinating in your book was your discussion of the kind of the knowledge of the landscape, of the availability of natural resources, of migratory routes that these animals possess. Um, and I found that just a really interesting way of I think, illuminating the different factors that inform pastoralism and sort of pastoralist practices and knowledge that it's not just kind of human informed and human driven, but that there's also this animal knowledge that plays such a huge role. So could you talk about that a little bit more about sort of, I guess, um, how, how you kind of observe that animal knowledge of their surroundings and of the landscape, what that looks like in practice. 
Yes, so, so maybe I have to talk a bit about how I came to work on this human-animal relations and what I was interested in and at the beginning of my research. So I, during my master's degree, I worked on human-horse relationship and especially on how, um, how the agency of the horse plays a role in their own husbandry and how uh, horses are kind of considered of uh, age uh, like yeah agents of their of their own uh, of their own uh, husbandry um, so um, I uh, looked at how herders uh, distinguish between their different animals at the uh, inside uh, the herd how they um, give different roles to the uh, different animals depending on their individualities um, their age uh, uh, their uh, their physical um, characteristics and their uh, their psychology, and and so I um, my question was really how do herders rely on the agency of their animals in their husbandry um, uh, system, and um, and and I was interested in in way uh, herders and animals coexist, how they communicate and how they um, uh, collaborate in, uh, in, in, daily, uh, in daily pastoral tasks. And of course, the, the first questions um, I, uh, I dealt with on, on the, in the field was um, how do they concretely live um, in, uh, on the steppe in, in this landscape? As, uh, for example, uh, you don't see any fences, um, you can't um, if, if you don't stay a year with them or if you don't track their movements, uh, it's difficult to, um, uh, to see how they move um, in, in the landscape. What, what is their territory, migra migratory territory? What is their route? And also how do they share this, um, these, uh, this land with other herders, neighboring herders? How, how do they use uh, this space? Um, so I uh, started, um, uh, I want to understand how the space is used. So I started, as, as I said, um, um, herders have, they raise the five muzzles. This implies that they have different herds, depending on the species, uh, that they have at least four different herds and uh, uh, usually more. Um, and so I started to track um, the animals' movements with, um, with GPS and to map uh, daily routes and also to map to map um, uh, seasonal uh, movements, and so uh, of course, as there aren't uh, uh, as many herders as there are uh, uh, animals, um, uh, the animals need to be uh, relatively autonomous in their movements. They need to know, of course, they know the places as they they also come. Um, as their movements are cyclical, they come every year to the same places, the same pastures. The animals know the landscape as the as the humans uh, do. Um, so I was interested in which species uses which part of the land, um, how they learn, uh, what are the limits of the land they are supposed to use as lands, of course, is shared with neighboring herders. Uh, their herders also need to be careful that they're Herds, different herds don't mix uh, with each other, for example. Uh, and so, um, mapping mapping those movements uh, was uh, one way of understanding 
how um, how the animals' movements are controlled, more or less, depending on the species and also on their uh, use um, and what frequency. Um, uh, for example, the, uh, sometimes uh, there are um, the, the the sheep uh, and the goats which graze together in, in, in the same herd. They they can be uh, watched for a, a whole day continuously, depending on the environment and depend, depending on uh, neighboring flocks. Um, whereas um, horses and camels can graze autonomously for several days or even sometimes several weeks. And um, and the the herders rely on uh, on the knowledge and on the autonomy of the animals to come back to the encampment. For example, um, the cows they know that they need to be milked in the evening, so they come usually come back by themselves in the evening. Also, of course, because they're calves, they stay uh, uh, on the encampment, which plays an uh, an attractive uh, role. In this uh, um, in this system, and uh, yeah, I, I was very interested also in what her to say about um, about the knowledge um, of the animals uh, uh, of the of the landscape. Um, so the the Mongols they have this um, um, this concept of nutek, which means um, literally homeland. Uh, but which also this notion of, of homeland also encompasses the relations uh, herders have with um, other people living uh, on the same uh, uh, in the same place, but also a relationship with with uh, invisible entities um, and the animals. They um, they know very well also their nutek. They know where their homeland is, and this is made very visible when. Um, uh, when an animal uh, is sold to another to, to another herder, for example, where herders always have problems with their new horses running back to their former uh, owner and former notak former homeland. And so, since you brought up um, the issue of pastoralist relationships with other people in the same landscape. I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about what those relationships are like, and specifically pastoralist relationships with non-pastoralists, uh, with agriculturalists, or with other kind of non-herding communities, because this seemed like a kind of recurring issue um, throughout your research of these kind of not maybe conflicts is too strong a word, um, but just the the tensions that can arise um, between people who are herding livestock and people who are not. So, could you talk about that a little bit? So, in in Mongolia, where I did field work, um, there were the, these were regions uh, where um, there were almost only herders. So, the uh, if there are any difficulties with neighbors, then it's with other herders and the main um, uh, main issues are um, the mixing of flocks uh, sheep uh, sheep and goats but also with um, with environmental change uh, and the disappearance of uh, uh, of some uh, rivers and lakes um, uh, this means that um, there are less uh, water uh, points available uh, also less um, pasture lands that can be used and that um, herders are forced to um, graze on smaller areas and closer 
uh, to each other. So this can be um, uh, sometimes uh, in some years, depending on, on the climate, this can be a very um, difficult um, issue. In uh, uh, among the Buryats in Russia, the situation is quite different, as they have they practice much more agriculture. Um, not so much the herders themselves, but the um, uh, the um, uh, there are some um, agricultural agriculturalists, but and also um, cooperatives. As herders are often members of cooperatives, which are a, a, a legacy of the uh, Soviet system, uh, collective uh, system. So, actually, at the fall of the of the USSR, um, the uh, collective farms, kolkhoz, uh, uh, they were um, uh, they, uh, yeah, they disappeared, but in, in reality, not so much, as they were replaced by cooperative forms, and people still call them kolkhoz. So, and in, in, in those cooperatives, they um, practice, um, they cultivate lands to um, sell crops or to distribute crops to, to the herders, as during the 20th century, um, under the influence of uh, uh, Russian productivism in, in the agricultural um, um, uh, in, in agricultural activities, um, new um, races of, of animal and animal uh, uh, Western types of animal were uh, imported, which needed much more, uh, um, uh, uh, they needed um, crop and, and hay. And so um, there is uh, the need for um, agriculture is um, uh, much more important. Uh, which, uh, so the cooperative have, uh, have huge um, surfaces uh, of um, uh, cultivated lands, uh, which of course creates uh, uh, tensions with the uh, herders living um, in the area. Um, because of those cultivated lands, the herders, they really need to uh, uh, move places uh, when comes the time of uh, of the uh, when the the growing I don't know how you call it the growing season is let's uh, speak, um, but um, but uh, herders they tend to um, move less because also of those I, I talked about it about the um, uh, the lack of electricity under a summer station they now prefer to. Uh, Watch TV, which is not possible on the summer on the summer station, and some herders stopped to uh, to move places, and uh, which of course creates huge tensions with with those cultivated lands, and it's also not always possible to fence those areas because it, these are really huge areas they need to fence, and traditionally they didn't need to fence them as herders would move during uh, during the summer, but um, the lack also of fences. Uh, uh, well, leads uh, to tensions as animals they go on those cultivated lands, uh, and of course is uh, causing huge damages to those um, cultivated lands. Mm. And so, just to continue off of what you just said about um, you know herders preferring to stay in areas 
with electricity that are sort of more comfortable. Um, I found really interesting some of these examples throughout your book of the people that you interviewed um, saying, at least this is how it was translated in the English version, um, saying that they're sort of getting lazy um, in terms of how they're um, how they're how they prefer some of the kind of more modern equipment and technology access to electricity migrating using trucks instead of livestock. Um, there was one example I found really interesting of um, I think it was a herding uh, pastoralist woman you interviewed uh, who said that she liked living in a wooden house with windows because she could watch her livestock from inside the house through the windows using binoculars and didn't have to go outside. Um, And so all of these kind of introductions of kind of modern life, I guess, um, into this environment and this context, but that there is a kind of sense of guilt among people when they adopt these modern instruments, um, that they're sort of relinquishing something, that they're giving something up, that they're kind of not doing nomadism in the right way or in kind of the traditional way. I found that really interesting. Um, And I was wondering how kind of widespread that is, if you think, if you found that to be kind of a common sentiment that people express the adoption of kind of modern technology and equipment as kind of laziness um, or is it also kind of balanced with this sense of practicality? Actually, I think it's not the use of technology that is perceived that is associated with, with guilt. When we look at, at the, the situation in Mongolia, um, almost all herders now have smartphones. They all watch TV, they all have uh, uh, solar uh, panel, which they use to recharge, uh, charge their phones and watch TV, um, but but they still live, continue to live under uh, under the yurt, and they use all this technology in in, in their um, pastoral practices. They use phones to um, to call a neighbor to ask whether he has seen his camels, or and or um, they use Facebook to uh, sell. Uh, uh, sell animals or to find to buy animals so it's really uh, this is really widespread uh, used in, in Mongolia in Siberia the, the situation is quite different because people slowly stopped to um, to move places and this is what is associated with with guilt they know they should be uh, they should move for the summer also to spare the lands to uh, protect the cultivated lands. And they stop doing it because they call themselves. Yeah, they they say that that they are lazy because no. They said it's it's easier to move when someone is forced to move, and the cooperative should encourage people to move. But as their the cooperatives are, are slowly uh, starting to disappear, they they don't move anymore. Um, and I think this also uh, the the role also of oppression and urban environment is very um, very important among the Buryats. Um I was really struck by the fact that um, herders themselves they um, some told me they actually drink when they want to drink milk 
they sometimes buy milk from a store and don't drink the milk of their own animals as they started to find that the smell is very strong. So, uh, um, and uh, I have the impression they um, they more and more want uh, uh, to live in, as, as you told, uh, uh, in, in wooden houses, but it is in, also in spaces which are clear, clearly separated, which which create a clear clear separation separation with with the with the animal uh, with the animals. So, at the difference of the yurt, the felt yurt, uh, in which from which you hear every sound of the animals uh, at night, you can check whether every, uh, everyone is okay just by listening to the sounds of the herds. The situation in uh, among the buryats. Uh, once you've closed the door uh, of the house, you don't hear anything. And uh, but you could look at your herd from the window, in fact, and you can also call uh, your neighbor to check uh, on 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 your herds through him. Um, and so maybe a final question, as we're coming up on the end of our time. Um, I'm curious about sort of. You mentioned this a little bit earlier about the potential of future research in this context, especially in Buryatia, which is complicated, obviously, by the war in Ukraine. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, what your future plans for research are in light of this, and also if you have a sense of how this plays and this community are affected by the war. I think we get a lot of news, at least where I am, about the, cons- the sort of disproportionate conscription of ethnic minorities, especially those from Siberia into the Russian army. So I'm just wondering, you know, from your position, from your position, having, I think, much closer knowledge of this context than I do, um, and probably than most Western journalists also, um, if you have a sense of what that looks like, how the wars is impacting this region, which is so far from Ukraine, but I think from what I've heard has been having kind of a disproportionate effect on that community. Yes, the Buryats are particularly affected by those conscriptions. Um, Not the people I know. The people I know um, uh, in in, in cities as well as uh, in the countryside, um, they just tell me it's it's difficult because um, uh, it's economically difficult because everything has become so expensive. And also, they can't travel abroad if they need. And a lot of, actually, a lot of people are fleeing from um, from Russia into Mongolia because the border is still open. Uh, so, but that's actually all I hear from uh, uh, from the uh, about the war from uh, from this region. It's it's more they had already very difficult economic conditions since two thousand eight, particularly difficult, and it's getting. Um, it's, it's just getting worse, economically speaking. Um, yes, and uh, so about my my future plans. Of, yeah, I am. Last time I was in Russia was in uh, with the Buryats was in 2016, and I hope to go back in in 2020. And then, of course, uh, COVID. Did uh, I? I wasn't able to. Um, so my plans are to um, to continue my research um, in Mongolia and try in the future try to compare the situation of different ethnic groups inside 
uh, inside Mongolia. I started to do field work among the Kazakhs of the, uh, the Altai mountain uh, of Mongolia. Uh, and I, I, if I have time, if I have the chance to do that, I would like also to um, start a new field work uh, with the Duha reindeer herders in of northern northern Mongolia in the taiga. That is inside the same country, compare different um, ethnic, cultural, and uh, also environmental conditions and the effects of, um, of those conditions on human-animal relations in pasteurism. And so, do you think that the um, kind of uh, like ethnic makeup of Mongolia is also going to change a little bit now? With like you said, people fleeing from Russia into Mongolia, do you think that will have? an effect on your future research in Mongolia with kind of displaced people entering the country? I don't think so, because people are mostly fleeing from urban centers to, to the capital, and it's, not, it's also not massive, uh, massive migration. But uh, what actually, so what happened uh, in, in, in Russia, in Buryatia, is, uh, and, and in the Aga district where I work, is um, Russian uh, following economic difficult economic uh, conditions is Russian uh, 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 people being employed by Buryat herders uh, as uh, herding assistants, which had uh, as it was this was a massive phenomenon, which had uh, really uh, important uh, impacts on animal relations with language changes and also way of uh, interacting with animals uh, in more Western way of uh, of. Uh, in a more Western style, but yes, this is another topic we don't have to time to develop. <laughs> no, I promise that was my last question. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your research with us. I think it's really, really interesting, especially how you, um, I think, kind of tease out and bring nuance to our understanding of especially human-animal relations, human-landscape relations, animal-landscape relations, all of these kind of complex factors that make up pastoralism as a system. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thank you.